How many times do you find yourself saying, if only I had known, I would have done things differently. If only I had known what the stock market was going to do, I would have invested differently. If only I had known that patrolman was over the hill, I would have slowed down. If only I had known it was going to snow so much, I would have bought a snowblower. If you knew with certainty what was coming next week, what would surely happen? What difference would it make? We often wish that we could predict what was going to happen, but we can't. But there have been and are predictions that have and will be fulfilled. And in our study today, we're going to look at some of those predictions. Now, some of you are going to be shocked. Well, any of you that know me well are going to be shocked by today's message because I'm not going to exposit a specific text of Scripture, which I always do except today. Yeah. <laughs> next week. Next week we'll, we'll look at a specific passage. But today's going to be more of a of a summary and a survey of the prophecies of Christ's first coming. Predictions of old that were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, in the incarnation. Now, the work of a prophet was certainly more than, than prediction. It was more than foretelling the future. In large part, the work of a prophet was foretelling, declaring the word of God. But it is, in particular, this foretelling, foretelling the, the predictive aspect of the prophet's work that we're going to consider today in our study. Now, before we review some of the specific predictions of Jesus' coming, I want us to take part of our time just to consider the importance and the value of prophecy in general. And then we'll spend a few minutes at the end looking at some of the specific promises related to Jesus' first Advent. So we're going to begin our study this morning by noting that the prophecies of Christ's coming are significant. The prophecies of his coming are significant, and they're significant in a couple of ways. They are significant in number, and they are significant in their, their purpose or their value. Now we'll start with the fact that the prophecies of Christ's coming are significant in number. When we talk about the, the predictions of Scripture, we are not talking about a, a small portion or just a, a few verses that are sprinkled and scattered throughout the pages of our Bible. We're talking about a significant portion of God's Word. According to J. Barton Payne in his rather uh, large volume entitled The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, of the Bible's 31,124 verses... 8,352 are predictive. That is 27% of the Bible. 28.5% of the Old Testament. 21.5% of the New Testament is predictive. Now, not all of these are related to distant uh, fulfillments of, of a prophecy. Many of these are uh, something that was realized in the near future. Uh, still, a significant portion of Scripture is predictive. And though only a portion of those predictions in the Old Testament, for example, are messianic, uh, 
the two focal points of prophetic literature were Christ's two comings. In the Old Testament, it is Psalms and Isaiah that have the most to say about the coming of Messiah. There are 13 Messianic Psalms. In Isaiah's writing, 59 of his verses speak directly of anticipating the Messiah. Messianic prophecy, however, is not limited to those two books. As we look through the Old Testament, we find that it begins in the very, very early pages of Scripture. First book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, we find the first prophecy of Christ's coming, that he would be the offspring of woman, that he would crush the head of Satan, a victory that Jesus won on the cross and will be finalized at his return when Satan is cast into the lake of fire. And from the pages of Scripture, from those first pages, right on through the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, Samuel, Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all of them predicted the coming of Messiah, the Christ. Then right on into the New Testament. The coming of the Savior Jesus is foretold. The angel came to Joseph and said, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Gabriel came to Mary in Luke chapter 1, saying, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And in the New Testament, once Jesus' first advent had been fulfilled, we find from that point on prediction, prophecy of his return. With the first coming of Christ and his life and ministry here on earth, we have one of the Periods of time were the, the greatest period, really, of, of prophetic fulfillment in all of history. Again, Payne, in his book, says 127 prophesied events, 3,348 verses, were fulfilled in Christ's life from his conception to his ascension. So the prophecies of the first coming of Christ and his earthly life were significant in number. They were also significant in their purpose, in their value. What is the purpose of prophecy? Why is prophecy important? Well, that depends to some extent on which side of the prophecy you stand. Uh, are you standing on the, on the side where it is, something is, is predicted or on the side where something has been fulfilled? Or on, on the side awaiting the fulfillment of prophecy, the purpose and value then is somewhat different than it is on the other side if you're one of those who has witnessed the fulfillment of prophecy. So what function does prophecy serve to those who are yet awaiting the fulfillment of the prophecy? Haven't yet seen it fulfilled, but are still waiting for that. One, one value of, of prophecy for those who await its fulfillment is that prophecy charts the course ahead. It charts the course. It informs of the future. It instructs of what is to come. Prophecy maps out the direction in advance so you know what is coming and how to prepare 
and how to recognize it when it's been fulfilled. In the days before we had Google Maps and GPS that audibly tells us what lane to be in and exactly when to turn, before all of that, remember we used to have maps. And we would get out when we were going to study, uh, go on a trip and we'd study the map. And we'd look at the highway numbers. And then we would look at the signs on the road and, and the, the street signs, the road markers. Well, prophecy is that kind of a, a road map. If we don't know what we're looking for, then how will we know that it has come? How did the saints of the Old Testament know about the coming of Messiah? How would they know when He had arrived? It was through the prophetic word. How would they recognize Him when He came? They would know by, by comparing what had been charted out prophetically with what was realized in life. Prophecies instruct those who wait to know what to expect and when it has come. The coming of a Savior. The coming of deliverance. The coming of judgment. All foretold in Scripture. And then knowing in advance what is coming, an appropriate course of action can be taken. So a second value or purpose of prophecy for those who are awaiting its fulfillment is that it stimulates right living. Holy living. And this is accomplished both through positive and negative aspects of the prophetic message. Prophecies of the coming of Christ contain not only the promise of blessing for those who trusted the Lord and loved Him and, and lived for Him, but also contain the threats and the promises of punishment and judgment for disobedient evildoers. The prophets declared that the coming one would bless the righteous and judge, condemn the unrighteous. And with such promises foretold, those who waited were motivated to righteousness. When our sons were very little, and we would leave them to go out for the evening, and we'd leave them with a babysitter, I would issue something of my own prophecy, my own prediction, and my own promise before Carol and I left. And I would say, um, I will be back. And when I come back, I expect a good report. Because if I don't get a good report when I come back, you're in trouble. And so in addition to comforting them and reassuring them that I would return, that I would be back, one of my purposes in my promise to them was to produce right conduct, right living. Prophecy yet unfulfilled incites holy living. One writer comments, the object of prophecy was not to excite surprise, but to stimulate enterprise. And Hingstenberg, in his massive work on Christology in the Old Testament, wrote, as the Messianic era was represented as the consummation alike of blessing and of punishment, the contemplation would inevitably act in the case of the righteous as a powerful impulse to steadfastness and in that of the wicked as an impulse 
to conversion. Now, that benefit of prophecy was not only true for those that awaited the first coming of Christ, but it's also true for all of us who await the second coming of Christ as well, isn't it? When he returns as king and judge. Prophecies of his second coming are to motivate us to persevere in faith and, and to obey his will. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.19, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then speaking of the end of this present world, Peter continues in chapter 3 and says, Since everything will be destroyed, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. And the Apostle John in Revelation 1.3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So prophecy is, is to prompt holy living in the lives of those who await its fulfillment. There's a third value for those who await the fulfillment. And that is that it gives hope. Gives hope. When the Old Testament prophets were writing, conditions in Israel were depressing. They were in captivity. They were in despair and in defeat. But running throughout the prophets' messages was the promise of hope. There was a message of hope that ran throughout their message. There was the promise of deliverance. There was the promise of a a future salvation that was to be longed for and sought after. A hope that raised expectation, that provided encouragement and confidence and and comfort. It is the promise of, of future blessing that gives hope. Now that's true whether it's anticipation of getting out of school for the Christmas break or whether it's a promotion at work or graduating, going on vacation. Best of all, eternity in the presence of our Savior. The promise of future blessing raises our expectation, causes us to persevere, and fills us with anticipation and and excitement and hope. So for those who await the fulfillment of prophecy, the prophecy serves to, to inform of the future, which in turn stimulates holy living and gives hope. But what's the value of prophecy for those on the other side? For those who have witnessed its fulfillment. After it's fulfilled, what is its value? Well, if awaited prophecy points out the direction ahead... Fulfilled prophecy shows where you have been and where you are now. You know what is. The same roadmap that shows you what to expect before you get there verifies when you are there and where you are now. 
When we see the sign on the road that matches the map in our lap, then we know where we are. We recognize our true location on the journey. So prophecy serves us as signposts, as landmarks, as checkpoints. When the prophecies of the coming Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus, men who would recognize who Jesus was, that he was the promised, long-awaited Messiah. And only the true Messiah would pass the test of satisfying all of those predicted events, those predicted prophecies. False messiahs would not fulfill them and thus show themselves to be false. But Jesus would fulfill each and every one of them in detail. Prophecy mapped out the future, enabled men to recognize its true realization when it was fulfilled. A second fulfillment or a purpose of fulfilled prophecy is that it confirms or it confronts men with the truth. It confronts men with truth. It shows the veracity of God's word. It bears witness to the authority of Scripture. It, it serves as an apologetic. Men are confronted with the fact that the Word of God, written over a period of 1,600 years, 60 generations by 40 writers from three continents, is all one cohesive, redemptive story. It all fits together. What was prophesied in one place, in one time, by one prophet is reported as fulfilled hundreds, sometimes many hundreds of years later by another writer in another place. Now that is not the result of chance or coincidence or statistical probability. That is the work of a sovereign God with a detailed plan that is being carried out over the ages and attempts to explain it away are futile and critics are left silenced whether they will believe it or not. By fulfilled prophecy, men are confronted with the truthfulness of God's Word. You may have run across some of these numbers in your own uh, reading on this subject, but one writer selected eight of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, for example, uh, some of them were uh, that he would be born in Bethlehem, enter Jerusalem on a donkey, be betrayed by a friend, his hands and feet would be pierced, he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and so on. And he calculated that the probability of any one man up to the present day fulfilling even eight prophecies like that would be one in ten to the 17th power. Now, for those of us that are not mathematicians or scientists, he illustrates it for us this way. He says, if you take 10 to the 17th silver dollars, it would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. So he says, then you take one silver dollar and you mark that one silver dollar and you throw it there in Texas and you stir it all up and you blindfold a man and you uh, let him wander any place in the state that he wants and select one dollar. 
And the probability of him selecting the marked one is the probability of one man fulfilling those eight prophecies. So then he goes on, if that's not enough, and he says uh, 48 prophecies. And he calculates the probability at 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And his illustration becomes so large that he puts it in terms of electrons, which I'm not even going to go there. But fulfilled prophecy testifies to the truthfulness of God's word. Another value of fulfilled prophecy is that it serves to confirm and strengthen the believer's faith. Isn't it exciting to read through Scripture and to see these, these long-ago prophesied events being fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of years later in the person of Jesus? That's exciting, isn't it? Hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, it was foretold in detail. Now, that is troublesome to the skeptic, but to the believer, the fulfillment of prophecy is confirmation, it is reassurance, comfort, that the one in whom we have placed our trust is in fact the Messiah. Jesus told his disciples of the coming of the Spirit. He promised that he would send the Spirit. John 14, 29, he said, I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. The fulfillment of prophecy stimulates, encourages, confirms, strengthens the believer's faith. And yet, while it may stimulate faith and encourage faith and assist faith, it does not cause faith. Because you and I know, we probably all know, unbelievers who have contemplated all of these things, they have contemplated the fulfillment of prophecy and so on, and yet still do not believe. Because the unbeliever will always find some way of ignoring it or explaining it away. Because the unbeliever's eyes are blinded to the truth. They cannot see the, the greatness of fulfilled prophecy until the Spirit of God removes the scales from their sin-blinded eyes. The Apostle John reports of Jesus' mighty deeds done before the Jews in John 12:37, said, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Fulfilled prophecy does not cause faith, but it does serve to give assurance and confidence and encouragement to the believer's faith. Still, another purpose of fulfilled prophecy is to bring glory to God. And that, after all, is the purpose of all things, isn't it, in time and eternity. And how beautifully the fulfillment of prophecy honors God. The fulfillment of, of prophecy shows us the greatness of our God. His absolute control over all of the events of life and history. That He has a master plan and He's bringing all of that to fruition. 
We see his, his wisdom as He has drawn all of these things together in His plan. We see His mighty power in, in bringing all of this about, all of these events to pass. We see His faithfulness in fulfilling His promises spoken of so long ago. And all of that is to stir us to praise Him. The fulfillment of prophecy can be attributed to to nothing else, no one else, but God alone. To Him be the glory. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of his prophecy, said, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my idols did them. My wooden image and metal God ordained them. God alone. God alone does them. Only He can accomplish them. The fulfillment of of prophecy shows forth the glory of God and stirs our hearts to worship Him and to give Him glory. Well, we've seen that the prophecies of Christ are significant Let's turn our attention for the last few minutes to some of the prophecies. And we note, second, that the prophecies of Christ's coming are specific. And here we're going to concern ourselves only with some of the prophecies that that relate to his first advent, his first coming, the incarnation. Now, we should note, however, that, that in some of the prophecies where his first coming is referred to, his second coming is also referred to in the same breath. Uh, let me give you an example. This is kind of this is called prophetic foreshortening or uh, compressed prophecy or um, telescoped prophetic perspective. It's sometimes called. Uh, here's an example: Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, Jesus quotes that those verses from Isaiah. Jesus quotes them in Luke chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. He quotes those concerning himself of his ministry at his first coming. But Jesus leaves off the very last phrase of Isaiah's prophecy and the day of vengeance of our God because that relates to the second coming. You see, it was all put together. But Jesus is referring to the first part, the first coming, and leaves off that, that part of the prophecy that relates to his second now, this, this kind of foreshortened prophecy has been likened to um, a person that is looking at ranges of mountains from a distance. And so you see all of the peaks of the mountains, but you can't tell from a distance which peak belongs to which range because you don't see the valleys in between the various ranges of mountains. And that's the way this, this prophetic foreshortening is. 
they didn't always see the, the time between the first coming and the second coming. But they're compressed there at times. So let's look at some of the prophecies that point particularly to the first advent, the first coming of Christ, beginning with those that speak of Jesus' lineage. There are numerous passage, passages beginning early in the Old Testament that speak of the lineage of Jesus, the nation, the tribe, the family, the house into which the Messiah would be born. And it starts again back in the early pages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, Noah blessed Shem, representative of the Semitic people, indicating that Christ's descent would be this, through this Semitic branch of humanity. Moving on to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and again in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, God told Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And the fulfillment of this prophecy is recorded in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, Galatians 3.16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The prophecy gets more specific. Of Abraham's son, sons, Ishmael and Isaac, it's prophesied that the Messiah was to be a descendant of Isaac. Genesis 21.12, God said to Abram, Abraham, through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And both of the genealogies of Jesus and the Gospels, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, record Jesus as a descendant of Isaac. Moving to the next generation, we find that he was prophesied that Jesus would come through the line of Jacob, not Esau. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. And a quick glance again at the genealogies in, in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, bear that out. And so the line has been narrowed further. Moving still closer, narrowing his lineage even more, we find that Jesus was to be born of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10 prophesies, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And again, both of the genealogies in the Gospels report this to be the case, as does the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 7.14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And from the tribe of Judah, we then move to the family of Jesse, prophesied in Isaiah 11.1. 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Matthew 1.5, Luke 3.32, report the fulfillment. Finally, we come to the house of David. And there are numerous prophecies stating that the Messiah will be a descendant of David. Jeremiah 23, 5, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. There are others. One will suffice here from Psalm. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. And the New Testament is full of references of the fulfillment of, of this prophecy. And there are too many to read, but again, all we have to do is begin with the first verse of Matthew. Matthew 1.1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David.
And then in addition to the genealogies indicating that he was of the line of David, we find numerous places in the New Testament where Jesus is addressed as Jesus, son of David. You know, sometimes we read the genealogies. Even the genealogies in, in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3, and we look at those and we, we think they're kind of boring and they're kind of pointless. They are thrilling statements of fulfilled prophecy. Through these prophecies, we see how specifically God narrowed down the lineage of Jesus. Of Abraham's two sons, he eliminated half by choosing Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and again, half were eliminated when he chose Jacob. Jacob had twelve sons, eleven twelfths were eliminated when he selected Judah. Jesse had at least eight sons. David was the one through whom the Messiah was to come. Messianic prophecy specified in detail the lineage of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all of that, even as narrow and as specific as that lineage was, issued hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Now, beyond the lineage... Messianic prophecy also specified the manner of Jesus' coming. Genesis 3.15 said that it would be through the seed of woman, that he would have a human nature in his incarnation. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. And in fact, we find in Luke that he was born of woman, espoused to Joseph. The prophet Isaiah prophesied in a passage read this morning, Isaiah 7.14, that he would be conceived by a virgin. And when the angel Gabriel announced the coming conception of Jesus to Mary, she said, how can this be since I am a virgin? Indeed, Joseph, it says in in uh, Matthew 1, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. In that same prophecy, Isaiah 7:14, it is stated that the child was to be called Emmanuel. And Matthew 1:23, written many years later, again states, the virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And indeed, that was fulfilled. Not just a label given to him, but Jesus was God with us. John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14 reports that the Word who was in the beginning was with God, was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1.19 In Him all the fullness of deity dwells. Colossians 2.9 In Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God with us. Prophecy also specified the place of Jesus' birth. Micah 5.2 But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, 
Out of you will come for me one who will be rule over, over all Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 reports, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, even though Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth. So even from these, these few prophecies I've cited, we see how specific the prophecies of Christ's coming were. And we've only considered some of those prophecies leading up to the birth of Jesus. We could go on and, and consider the, the prophecies of his life and his ministry. I'm not going to cite the, the prophecy and the reference for all of these, but all these were, were prophesied, that he would live in Nazareth, that he would minister in Galilee, that he would have a forerunner, John the Baptist, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver that he would be despised by the people, that he would be forsaken by the Father, that men would mock and insult him at his death, that he would thirst, that his, his, his hands and, and feet would be pierced, that men would gamble for his clothing, that he would be assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, that he would rise again on the third day. All of those predictions fulfilled in one person the person of Jesus Christ. As we celebrate Christmas this year, let's be mindful of the numerous prophecies of our Savior. And, and let's remember, they're significant and they're specific. And as we contemplate that, let's stand amazed and worship our Savior, who is the fulfillment of prophecy. Let's worship our Savior. Do you worship the Savior? Do you know Him personally through faith? Not merely as, a, as the subject of familiar Christmas carols, but do you know Him as the promised Messiah, the living Christ, as Lord Savior, King, have you placed your trust in Him? Are you relying on His perfect righteousness? Are you depending on His historic, accomplished, atoning death on the cross and His resurrection for your salvation? If not, will you today? Jesus came in fulfillment of the prophet's prediction to seek and to save the lost, to grant eternal life to all who would trust Him alone and Him completely for salvation and who will one day, as prophesied in Scripture, come again that we might be with Him and worship Him in His presence for all eternity. Father, thank you for allowing us opportunity to consider the many prophecies and their importance to us. May it thrill our hearts as believers 
to contemplate all of these things. May it fill us with, with hope and anticipation of prophecy yet to be fulfilled in the second coming of our Savior Christ Jesus. And Lord, may all of this cause us to fall in worship. To worship our Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand?